Hello and welcome to Informatics in the Round. I'm Kevin Johnson, Chair of Biomedical Informatics at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. I'm glad you decided to tune us in. We've got an interesting hour in store for you. There's a bit of a story behind this release. It won't be a surprise to any of you who've done a podcast that we recorded this one a couple of months ago. That date, as it turns out, was about 10 years after the Nashville flood that really devastated our entire community. But it gets worse. It was also a few years after the shooting during the Route 91 Harvest Music Festival in Las Vegas, and it was a week before the Nashville tornado that killed over 24 people here in town. Of course, now it's COVID-19 season, and we created this podcast about two weeks before COVID-19 resulted in a near shutdown of music venues throughout the city as well as around the country. It's been a really tough time. We had a number of great guests on this episode, which focused a lot on the people and processes we use to take care of ourselves and how disruptions can affect it. Informatics ideas and solutions are peppered throughout this episode. In medicine, there's a title given to doctors who are great at patient care, internationally known researchers, and wonderful educators. We call them triple threats. Scott Scovel is a quintessential Nashville triple threat. He's a terrific artist, as you'll hear, but he's also a songwriter in town with a number of songs available for us to download, open parenthesis, hint, hint, close parenthesis, exclamation point. He's also a very successful entrepreneur, as you'll discover. Scott has some serious stories to tell, and I was so pleased, so pleased, that he was willing to share them with us. Laurie Novak is a PhD anthropologist in our department who studies people and organizations and translates those needs into informatics analyses and tools. She won't need any more introduction than that. She's awesome. It's also a treat to have two other guests on this episode. Coda Davison is a project manager in our department who has had a few experiences with healthcare and as a patient that he'll share. Then there's Sarah Bland, who is another project manager in our department who is smart, funny, and insightful with the right amount of irreverent humor, which we just love. Just a joy to have on here. Thanks a lot, Sarah. We covered a lot, and I want to let the pros take the stage. So let's get started. So I went to Reykjavik, and there is this um, clear liqueur that they drink there. And I have it. I actually have it at home, and I don't think I've actually had any since we got back. I had it originally. Oh my God, this stuff! You drink that much, your body temperature goes up four degrees. I kitch, I shit you. Wow. I mean, it is some hot stuff. So you just—they give it to you in a little shot glass, and you do this, and it's just like. <laughs> Icelandic antifreeze. I take, I take clothes off. Yeah, it was amazing. So I, that was your excuse. <laughs> I've, always wanted to, I've always wanted to go there. I mean, I've always wanted to go so, to Marlowe. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so why don't we go ahead and get started. So, um, 
we got some great guests today. I'm Coda Davison, and I'm the Senior Project Manager uh, in the Department of Biomedical Informatics. I'm Sarah Bland, the Sarah Bland. The and, one and only. The yeah. one and only, and I am Project Manager in the Center for Precision Medicine. Nice to see you. It's been so long, like yeah. hours. Reunited. Oh, my God. Don't and start. it feels <laughs> so good. Reunited. And, and we understood. Yeah, you'll never get me singing. There's one, one perfect thing. This one, one is it. We, we both are so excited because oh, we're reunited. Hey, hey. I can sing a little bit. Oh my God. Okay, enough about all that. Wow. I'm Laurie Novak. I'm on the faculty here in biomedical informatics, and I'm an anthropologist. Anthropologist and informatics. Yeah. We may have to go into that a little bit more. So yeah. All right. And then what's your name? Uh, Scott Scoville. I'm an entrepreneur on the live side of the music business here in Nashville. So how'd you get here? I drove. <laughs> That's pretty good. Alan Jackson. If you mean Nashville, Alan Jackson. Hi. Wait, wait, hold it. Oh yeah, here we go. So I've heard this song before. Yeah, wait, maybe. Wait, wait, hold it. Who thinks that's Johnny Cash? That or Chris Young? Could be Chris Young. That low voice. Guess who that is? I don't know. Who is it? That would be this guy, Scott School. Lord have mercy. Who I have to tell you is one of the coolest people in town in terms of at least his Christmas call. So, what is that noise I keep hearing? It's that awful noise. Uh, I must be me talking over your music. Is and this, that what you're saying? This song is, yeah, okay. You're embarrassing me already, but yeah. That's okay. Well, I can do that tomorrow. Well, you know what? I won't play this now, but at the end of the uh, at the end of the podcast, yeah. I'm going to go out with one of your songs. I'm going to go out okay. with one of the, with, with probably, probably trying. Okay. So, all right. Enough about that for now. Although, I might put it back on and embarrass you because it's just okay. sitting right here. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, play this part. That's my, that's my buddy, Stan. This is a duet with the Norwegian. Guy named Stian. My band, Spinning Wheels. Oh, nice. Yeah. So, you know, this kind of stuff doesn't make you go, get very far here in Country Music City, right? Well, uh, Norway in the summertime is probably not angled at being a hit in Music Row. Yeah. Probably but it not. is directly pandering to the Norwegian audience. <laughs> and and uh, as usual, it works. Yeah. It's actually <laughs> Tell awesome them you song. love them, and they'll love you back. That's exactly right. Now, now, Scott, so tell us more about you, because you've had a great history here in town. Because uh, I hear you, you're really good friends with this guy, um, Pees, Paisley? Paisley. Paisley, yes, right. Yes, not yeah. the pattern, the person. Got yeah. it, yeah. yeah. I've never heard that before. Uh, Brad is a dear friend. <laughs> um, I think I have other friends. But yes, he's, he's awesome. He's an incredible guy. And I, I moved here um, in 92. Alan Jackson hired me, and I thought it was the end of my career to move to Nashville and work for some guy who wore a cowboy hat who I'd never heard of before. So I got out of there as fast as I could and only spent 17 years on the road with him. There you go. So pretty quick, I was out of there. Yeah. Just 17 years later. Yeah. That makes you older than 17. It does. Yeah. yeah. It does. Who'd have thought? Yeah. For those of so you who young. can't see him, just imagine this really skinny guy with no facial hair whatsoever. And you will not be looking at Scott. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't say it. <laughs> it's pretty close. Yeah. Imagine a linebacker with a beard. There That's you it. go. So, you know, what's interesting is we've never actually had a chance to really interview somebody who's gone through the whole music industry and be an artist. Yeah. And how do you like how do you like the transition? I, I love it. I mean, you, you get into music, I, at least I hope you do, and I did, because I loved music. From the time I was a kid, it's all I ever wanted to be a part of. I listen to the Top 40 Countdown every week, 
and was just excited to hear and sometimes angry that the wrong song climbed the charts. And I've just always had a real passion for it. And so when I moved into a career, it was, it was going to be music for me. And um, I spent my whole life helping other people be heard and seen. And that's been wonderful. I wouldn't trade any of that for anything. But I find myself suddenly realizing that I can have a voice. Yeah. And that is a whole other level of magic. So the past few years of singing and performing have just been wonderful. It comes out in your music. And I, can, I haven't seen you on stage yet, but I've actually seen a couple of your music videos. And I hope we all check them out because yeah. it really comes out when you see you on stage. It's I'm like having a great time. Kid in a candy store. I am. Yeah. It's also scary as crap. And I smile when I'm scared. So, yeah. you know, good news. I look really happy and I'm like, gosh, I hope I remember the words. Well, I'm glad you're not like my dog and when you're pant when you're when you start panting when you're happy, that's when we got to That's hard about. to say that yeah, way. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Now, I know one of the things I I saw about you that actually really relates to informatics was the way in which you had to deal with the Nashville flood. So I'd really love it if you could tell, because a lot of us have never heard about that whole story. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, it was one of the craziest periods of my life. Um, so I, two of my companies, at the time I only had two, were ended up in the river. They weren't wow. flooded. They were in the river. They were a part of the Cumberland River. And we all believed that um, when we got a, when we heard word that, that was going to rise 18 inches, I went like, okay. And I know that they've been really good about predicting that stuff because I've done a lot of shows down the riverfront of that barge, and they're within an inch every time. And so they said 18 inches, and it was Sunday, like worst day it could be, and uh, went up like three, four feet, and that was enough to keep me from getting into my place. And then the waters kept rising. It also was day one of Brad Paisley's rehearsals, which is crazy timing. And I'm... uh, I assume a role more or less like a creative director with him. And so we're trying to load in his show, and we're hearing that some of the trucks can't make it because of the flooding, which I find surprising. And then I hear... 18 I get inches. A, that shouldn't yeah, affect the truck. Was, right, exactly. Yeah. And it was feet, obviously. And uh, I get this phone call, and I actually have the whole thing captured on film. We had agreed to do a reality show on me building Brad's tour for GAC. It was actually a pilot. We were going to maybe do a whole series of that. Hmm. And so I had a film crew, and I had this moment on tape where the person on the other end of the phone says, Moo TV's underwater, and it's getting deeper fast. And um, I didn't know exactly the amounts right then, but it would turn out to be that I would lose over $5 million in equipment oh my and only have a million dollars in flood insurance. Oh, my gosh. And... Um, you know, our total equipment at that point was maybe 10. I lost about half of what I had. It was devastating, and I almost went bankrupt for two years. And climbing out of that was Herculean, and my team was amazing through it, and we got through it. Uh, but two years later, I still was making payroll by, like, credit cards on, on the bad weeks. But really more the emotional side of it. It was pretty devastating emotionally for all of us. I mean, Brad lost nine of his 11 touring guitars, which were yeah. his babies wow. and very unique and, and, and incredible instruments. And So I have to ask, when they said they were lost, were they just destroyed or yeah. literally, okay, and they're so not they're wooden instruments. Yeah. Wooden instruments. And so there were processes that were tried to dry them out, but they you could just hear them. Brad was talking about one last week. He said, my favorite guitar. He said, and we're sitting there and it's in this bag of rice. He said, and I heard it pop. It just went bang. And you walk over and there's this huge, just, it's just split, you know. Yeah. You, you, the, the wood is going to be, is going to expand and contract at different rates. And the electric guitar, which is his go-to, is, you know, a few inches thick. And it's just going to crack and warp. And, yeah. yeah. 
That's tragic. So it was hard, yeah. and we knew we had a show in 28 days. So we knew we had to be ready with a show, and he's very much a perfectionist. And just the pressure of what we went through to just get the show together was brutal. He and I both cried. He cried on camera, and we left it in the show. Hmm. And, he's, and we talked about, should we cut this out? And very much to his credit, he said, no, this is what happened. There was a flood. It was horrible. People cried. Yeah. I cried. Let's leave it in. Yeah. You know, I say you, in a way, there's a, you've had a little bit of a Forrest Gump-like last few years, you know, because the Vegas thing hit you, and obviously this thing yeah. hit you. Which kind of, you know. There's more. <laughs> I can't take it. Hold it. I don't have enough alcohol in this yeah. coffee. So, is that what that is? Where's mine? Shh, shh, shh. No, wait. We poured these together. You know mine's completely straight. No, no, no. Um, but I got to say, I can imagine all the people who, who, who were working with you at that time, their lives were really disrupted by, by all that. We all were, yeah. Can you tell us some examples of how it kind of disrupted your life? Because it turns out this is an area that Laurie has studied. And mm-hmm. I'd love to have her talk a little bit about it after you talk yes, about it. Yes, and hearing her introduction, I have no idea what she does, so I can't <laughs> wait to hear her speak. Um, I'm like, oh, wow, am I at the wrong table? For me, there was a, So I gained 15 pounds that year. I didn't sleep much between stress and having to pull things together and trying to make things work. And, and so by the time you were through with dealing with the mud and the muck and whatever it was all day, you hadn't looked at your email, so you're up all night doing email. I didn't have time for real meals, mm-hmm. so I was four times a day at McDonald's or mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. And so there was a, there was a, a really noticeable... I hadn't really thought about it until you just asked, but there was really a noticeable mental and physical change in me. Wow. That's hard times. How'd you get out of all that? I didn't. Haven't you seen me? <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's wearing his glasses. For those of you yeah, listening, right, right. He, I don't know why. Well, um, no, because you know, for I, me, eating four meals a day at McDonald's is called like Monday. But you know, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, You're not supposed to laugh at that, Sarah. Yeah. I was looking at McDonald's and you said it. <laughs> Well, it is really nearby, so... Actually, it's more like Wendy's. True. Cody is my Wendy's buddy for salads only, right? Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They have great romaine over there. Yeah. Mm. So... To paint a word picture for those at home, I can see the golden arches from the window right here. It's lovely. Thank you for sharing that. Makes me want a nugget. I've gone in... We'll take a picture, but we'll take it from that direction so you can stare at it. Yeah, I've had entire years where I haven't eaten fast food since... I only eat it when I, you know, really need to now. I work really hard at getting the right amount of sleep. I do try and work out, and uh, I'm not as bad as it sounds like I am on this podcast. They say radio adds 15 pounds. I had no idea it's because Kevin says it just does. Wasn't that TV that adds 15 pounds? No, in, this, in your case, I'll say it's radio. No. No. Did I sound bad in that podcast? So Sorry. That's okay. Is this the story that you heard? A yes, lot? I was doing. Re- I was actually doing research on nurses initially, and we were talking about implementing technology in a clinical setting. And I had actually written a paper, and one of the reviewers said, "It sounds like you're talking about disruptions." And I thought, "Oh, that word disruption is really a good one." And it was lodged in my brain. And then the flood happened, and I thought, "Oh my goodness, a lot of people have just had the mother of all disruptions." And so what we did was we recruited. I think it was about twelve people who um, had diabetes and lost their homes. So it was, we had a very narrow, <laughs> narrow set of criteria for the study. And so we didn't get very many people. 
but boy did they have amazing stories and um, one of the first things we learned was that so the flood was a big disruption in their lives and it wasn't like for every, it wasn't like everybody's life was going along perfectly and then the disruption happened I mean people were in the middle of all kinds of things like people were in the middle of divorces and there were custody issues and now all of a sudden they didn't have a house or people were just in getting ready for big events in their lives and now like that big event has been disrupted and um, we documented a lot of health related disruptions people who normally got their exercise by doing yard work for example no yard anymore because now I'm living with my mother-in-law and so we analyzed all this data and we found that people had established routines for managing diabetes and diabetes requires managing diet and nutrition and also monitoring blood sugar there's a lot of like little tasks and things that need to be tracked and and details to be accounted for and so they had systems that involved things and spaces so i like i keep this thing on top of the refrigerator and i keep this other thing next to my coffee pot and now refrigerator's gone down the cumberland and i've got to use my mother-in-law's coffee pot and so in in the end it was just it was a bad deal for everybody although we looked at some reports from Katrina and it seemed like there was only one paper that we could find that talked about this phenomenon and looked at like long term and it seemed like people ultimately recovered but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do something about this uh, to help people get through so we heard a lot of stories and talked to a lot of musicians we ended up with two people giving us CDs of their own music out of a dozen that we interviewed. So When you say recovered, it piqued my interest because I helped do Katrina clean up two weeks after the hurricane, so I saw it firsthand. What do you mean by recovered, and how long did that take? Well, like this paper that we found said, you know, years later, their blood sugar was back under control or something uh, years like that. Later. You know? yeah, yeah, that's significant. Like, within years? five years, they were, you know, whatever, it, whatever the... Um, medical indicator that they were mm-hmm. tracking was back under control and so it was we re- we still need to do things to help people we mm-hmm. need to do outreach we need to establish infrastructure for connecting with people and that was really one of the things that struck us the most and we actually wrote about this was sort of reflecting on gosh how could this have gone better how could we have avoided some of this you know and these weren't Vanderbilt patients that we recruited just from the community we but there were a lot of Vanderbilt patients that were affected by this flood and so imagine the flood happened and did you have your phone still yeah okay your phone goes off and you get a notification from Vanderbilt that says your address work or home seemed to be near the area where there was this big disaster we'd love for you to come in and check on you yeah. Would you have been able to do that I probably would have done that do uh, you think that something was wrong at the I'm, time I'm, I'd like to be uh a bit of a scientist at times and uh, just always love science so I think I would have done that and what I was just thinking as you were talking is like what well first off what do you do for these people and one of the best and easiest things I think you could do is make them aware of how this disruption may affect their lives because awareness is one of the greatest ways like who's who's the best person to serve the patient the patient so make the patient aware, like, okay, you're going to, through this disruption. That's a really good point. And so that's what I was thinking while, yeah. you know. Yeah. This disruption puts your health at risk. I felt like it would make sense to enable clinics or enable actual provider teams to reach out so they know what their patients need. So if you're, if you're taking care of patients in a specific clinic, you might ne- know that the text that goes out to them needs to say, you may have lost your meds. So we've called yeah, in another yeah. set of meds for you, and it's at this CVS that um, in ca- if you're able to get to this CVS, let us know if you can't get to this CVS, mm. and we'll Uber it 
to you or whatever. Like there are some things that we could have done. And I remember thinking our grad students in our department could have figured out how to do that like yeah. over the weekend. Yeah. Um, but I think the things that were more difficult require more kind of political aspects of informatics. So for example, there were maps that were produced that showed the inundation of the area, the what, where the water went. They took photos and they rasterized these photos so you could tell from this map which addresses had been inundated. Who at Vanderbilt knows who to call at Metro government to get that map, right? Yeah, like yeah, we yeah. don't have those, we don't have that infrastructure in place. And then the overlay the, where the clinics and stuff are at that you could advise people to go to. Right. right. So, Scott, I think the question that you're asking, which is, you know, what does an anthropologist have to do here? What would you say your contribution is to learning about this? Well, field work, for one thing. Anthropologists go out to people's houses and talk to them. I mean, that's one big thing we do. Or when we're studying healthcare workers, we go and hang out with them and watch them work. So that's a big thing that anthropologists do and try to really collect our data with a sense of empathy about what is the situation that this person is facing and document all that. So that's one thing that we do. And then we yeah. analyze our data and try to work with others to do good things with it. Because I'm learning, I mean, honestly, we've not really talked about your results much, but I'm immediately seeing that one of the things we could be doing in our department for the next tornado is to try to practice the idea of alerting physicians to patients that we actually have in our system, because we have everybody's addresses, we have census information. Mm -hmm. It is entirely possible that we could send a message through our My Health at Vanderbilt system, which is our mobile kind of portal, that says, we think your address may have been near or a part of the tornado. If you need some help, we're here. Here's some actual information that you might want to use in terms of shelters or food. Why, let me just ask you, so why weren't you eating food that you would normally eat? Was it because you lost your kitchen? I had time. Consumed? Yeah. You know, I just, it was the drive through was fast. Yeah, what could we have done to help? Oh, I don't know. Um, it could have, uh, I, I mean, I suppose I could have qualified for some program, but I doubt I would have done that. I don't, I don't know when you're under pressure like that. Yeah. What could have helped if, uh, if I'd lost my home is, is like, hey, reply yes to this text and we'll have new, like it looks like you might have lost your home. We'll have your medicine at your local pharmacy, which we believe is this one. Mm -hmm. Like Because, you know, sometimes it's hard to get a hold of your doctor, particularly yeah. when a lot's going on. I guess you could just call the pharmacy and they could call them in. But I don't know about f um, what would have helped with food there. You know what? Yeah. We're going to do this. This is easy. Yeah. yeah. And I've well, been trying to get our department to do a couple of big projects. This is one. I think we could do this. We this know how to easy. get all the, Yeah. It sounds like it's hard, but it's really not because we have all the data. Yeah. Informatics is all about being able to use the information to support action. So if somebody said to me today, um, a tornado happened in this location. Like one of the things we've done in the department is when a med gets recalled, we mm -hmm. now contact patients and let them know that their med was recalled, yeah. which you couldn't have done 15 years ago. And now yeah. it's trivial. It's like no big deal. Mm -hmm. So you could help us to put together, and you, I mean, Laurie, maybe even you, Scott, heck, let's get you some more press. You got four companies. You could have a couple more, right? Sure. Yeah. I'm in. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, we could do this. We could actually imagine. That, I mean, we could actually get to the point where, when there's a tornado, Vanderbilt is actually notifying the patients who are there and letting them know your meds have been reordered in case you need them. They're at the Walgreens. Blah blah blah. I mean, we literally could do all of that right now for our patients. So I'm gonna, we're going to walk from that. Thank you. And I think that what you're saying is really important about being so overloaded with all of these things to do. We heard that. It, it was very compelling to listen to these stories because people talked about they tried to go to work and do their jobs, but they're like trying to figure out, you know, I'm trying to fight with Comcast because they're wanting me to, mm -hmm. 
I'm trying to cancel it, and they want me to to bring them the box. And I'm trying to explain to Comcast that the I don't have the box. You know, it's, it's gone. in the river. <laughs> Here's the, the remote. A cream. Yeah. Remote got caught in the screen <laughs> door. Here yeah. it is. Like, when you're thinking about funny, that, like normally all of us go our entire work day without thinking about our cable box, right? And so yeah. when you're having to think about that, it, all this other stuff goes into the background. And even yeah. if the other stuff is important. Yeah, the mental health aspect, um, I think, is probably what was most profound for me when I saw Katrina devastation. And that's how I relate to this, because that was, you know, a decade ago, and I yeah. still can see everything so clearly one of the women that i met that we helped clean up some of the stuff from her house had a tub that landed in her yard um, and she filled it with yellow pages and white pages this was 2005 so we're still around Um, she filled it and it i mean i'm not kidding it was all the way to the top and it was all moldy and everything at this point and we said man we can just throw these away you don't need them and she said no 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 fema said that they're going to compensate me for everything so i cannot get rid of anything oh my and she gosh. was sure that she would be compensated for these books and i looked at her and she was you know tap, she was an average person i mean went to work every day and everything but the trauma of losing everything and she had a literal 150 year old tree in the middle of her house oh. mm. She just couldn't process that a yellow book was yeah. you know, free and it was not going to be compensated and yeah. that was not something to hold on to. You know, so what you're saying, the trauma of something like this and the disruption of that, you know, normal day-to-day stuff doesn't make any sense anymore because now you're having to deal right. with compensation for things or trying to talk to Comcast. So, I mean, is mental health something that we could invest in and in trying to alert people like, hey... Yeah. You might need these services and you hadn't thought about them before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sounds like you might have, would that have helped you, you think? You know, I've never had any mental health, so it might be nice to get some during the next tragedy. Um, I think what I was thinking is yes, and, uh, you know, maybe there's some some people in t- uh, that are in school to be counselors or even people that could just help do day- day-to-day stuff. Wouldn't it be interesting if a part of disaster relief was just somebody who's just capable stepped into your life and said, hi, what do you need? Do you need me to help you find your cable box or deal with a cable company or whatever? I, I don't know, but yeah. but yeah, I think that was very traumatic for me and probably could have used some help by the time it was all over. That's a very good point, and and not everything that needs to be done is going to be based upon technology because technology is going to be lost for many of those people. And there have to be alternatives presented as to how we get information out to them or how we help them. It's true. I mean, when we, talking about Katrina, I did a feature-length film about health information exchange, and we featured some of the stuff that happened in Katrina. And one of the obvious things is, well, you know, I don't know that health information exchange with computers would have helped if we didn't actually have electricity. Yeah. I'm like, that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> Hold up, yeah. gotta erase that part of the film. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you, you don't know. You, know, you, you don't, really don't know. know. I yeah. mean, especially with a tornado, I think that's even trickier. But, but so of the, so back in that era, I mean, not everybody had cell phones at that, mm-hmm. even in 2010, but everybody we talked to got out with their cell phones, even the older people. I mean, I interviewed someone who was literally coming out of her house up to her neck, mm-hmm. and and she was blind, and she got out with her cell phone <laughs> somehow. So, like, it, wow. like people laugh. prioritize their imagining. phones. Oh. <laughs> well, people oh. prioritize their phones right. because they're, like, there's so many things with yeah. it, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about medical records, like, 
you know, a lot of people don't keep all of their medical medical records in place. And that's, it. for me, my health at Vanderbilt is like where that goes. You know, I've kind of imported stuff over time and made sure that my PCP has that stuff. You know, one thing that we could say is if you lost those records, here's where they are. You know, and easily accessible on your phone. So if you have to make a new doctor's right. appointment, we've got that for we you. We can definitely do this. Yeah. So I'm curious. You didn't have any music on your phone then, did you? Uh, I did not. Okay. I went, uh, yeah, in 2000. It started right after that. Yeah. My music started right after that. Yeah. Brad Paisley's, all of his creative was in two different locations. We're pretty good about backing up. And um, we had two different companies, so two different locations, and they both went under. Jeez. And so we're talking about years of just content we had built yeah. and things. And so the, um, it's a bit off topic, but... And I'm sorry, I think we're past the statute of limitations, but it was a, the police were keeping everyone out of the area, and myself and another business owner got a dinghy, and we motored our way into the office of and went waded through, and I, mean, uh, I got all of Brad's hard drives out, and um, and uh, yeah, just you know. Sure, he appreciated that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's amazing. But I, wow. I wonder, and this is again a little off topic. There's no such but there's thing as such off topic. a. It was right down there in Cowan Street. And there was a chemical plant down the street. And I wonder how my health was affected by spending time in that water. Yeah. So. Yeah. There has not been one album about the flood that I've seen. Is it the case that, was it like off limits or did the, the whole industry decide we weren't going to talk about this? It hurt. Um, I have not heard a song at all. I haven't heard anything either. That's interesting. I don't think Brad had any interest in doing anything but putting it behind him. Hmm. But when he came on stage the first night, 28 days later, um, he went to sing the first line and just burst into tears. Uh, I'm tearing up thinking about it. It was just a powerful time for yeah. us. Uh, we were just so exhausted mentally from just trying to do the things that we do easily because nature had made it so hard for us. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, I'd never thought about writing a song about it, which is interesting because... Um, just my angles on the Vegas tragedy. I've written three songs about it. I was going to say, there's been stuff about Vegas. And, and yeah. you know, I would have always thought, you know, we, informatics is in the healing arts, okay? Mm-hmm. I would have thought that that song could be one of the most powerful anthems. You know, we have songs about HIV. Yeah, well, you know what's great is now that, you're, now that we're doing this podcast, somebody's going to send you a link to a to beautiful a, song that they wrote about the flood. That's a good idea. I look forward to hearing that song. Maybe it'll be yours. Maybe I'll write a song about the flood. Maybe. You know, with the Johnny Cash reference, Folsom Prison, I mean, you're like, you're the guy who has the perfect voice to talk about this. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. All right, so. Well, Johnny had, what's that, uh, How Deep's the Water? What's that one? I don't know that one. <laughs> I just know show tunes. It's not one of my favorite Johnny songs. <laughs> Don't you dare laugh at that. No, no, no. It's no, very no. serious. It's very serious. It's very serious. Yeah. Well, I did want to say one other thing about what what you brought up before about exposure mm-hmm. to chemicals or whatever. And that's another thing that um, informatics is really good for is to try and put together information from different sources. So, yeah. so I've always thought it would be cool if as a part of our patient's history, um, instead of just their diseases that they've had or whatever, get all their home addresses that they've ever lived in. And then you could say, oh, you lived near this copper mine for 15 years when you were growing up, and now you're part of, you're part of a large group of people who have this whatever disease, you yeah. know. And, and so to put these associations together of, like, place or exposure and then ultimately some sort of 
health outcome, that's another good thing our field can do. So at the beginning of this podcast, when I was uh, talking about being ignorant as to what you did, I was not pretending. I did not know anything about what you did. But what I'm gleaning is it's just it's big data, and it's just move it's numbers and yeah, it's big. and trying it's... to find patterns mm-hmm. and uh, or use or use the information yeah to address situations is what we're talking about. But I find all that fascinating. I think it's one of the technologies that's going to make the world a much better place. Yeah, we're, we're pretty good at that here. There's big data, which I mean, anything, even including like NASA data on climate, you know, and, and stuff the that's in picture. the air and all that. So, and so that's big data that could impact health. But then there's, uh, in my field, there's a phrase, thick description, which means you sit and you engage and you write long descriptions of people's lives that you're working with. And so that's thick description. And so there's this new idea that you can bring, you can have big and thick, that you can bring these two together and like do potentially useful things with it. So I have to say that third arm, you can barely notice it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> My third arm. Yeah. Good for from the, art. from the chemicals that I yeah. was in. Yes. Yeah. What, was what superpowers did you receive, Scott? Well, I can scratch my back. And yeah. I was going to say that's both my ears at the same time. I have time. never seen anybody who could grow a beard on the back of their neck. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool, man. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you. you developed the technique of double straw. <laughs> well, <laughs> now I need to learn to play. You don't uh, need a twelve string. Two, two instruments. I can play lead and bass at the same exactly. time. There you go. You can at least pick up a harp. You know, oh, just, you know I was going to get all this abuse when I came here. <laughs> it's just love. It's, it's, how that we feel it about, it's how we feel about the music love. industry. You know what? I'm from love. New York, and that's actually how I communicate love, too. There you go. If I'm giving you a hard time, I like you. So thank you. There you go. Thank you. But so, do you think in the EHR we capture things like when someone has had a, a, a traumatic event like this? Do you think that's captured appropriately? I mean, did people say, you know, were you a part of a, a natural disaster at any point? Because how many people say... You know, I was a part of the the flood and waded through waters, or I was in Hurricane Katrina. I mean, we, it's publicized about like nine eleven victims, but I don't really hear it about other stuff. So here's here's the other side of this problem, which is communication, right? Yeah. So I would be willing to bet you, and we can do this. I well, I could do it actually after we're done, but I can search the entire electronic health record and look for the word flood across every single record, and I would be willing to bet you there will be no spike around the time of that flood. That's crazy. And the unfortunate reality is, you know, as much as you'd like to believe every single doctor, every single nurse is completely aware of that stuff, the same way that the music industry kind of treated it from the standpoint of writing a song, I think a lot of us treated it from the standpoint of dealing with patients, which is if they brought it up, we were going to deal with it, but there were patients who did not bring it up, and I'll bet you nobody ever asked, which is why, this is exactly why the kind of stuff we do in informatics would be great, because we may not bring it up, but you may really need us to bring it up, and we don't take the time to bring it up. It goes beyond the natural disaster type things. Same thing could be said for those of us that are veterans. We always get asked, are you a veteran? But then it stops. And yeah. there's a lot of things that have happened to our veterans that would be wise to be captured in the health yep. And it may, it may be stuff you don't even know. Right. You know, there might be stuff that we could capture that you aren't aware of. Right. Um, one of the things that I work with a little bit on the side is we have taken the de-identified electronic record and added geocoding. Um, What's to, geocoding mean? So geocoding is to add latitude and longitude based off of a zip code or an address. So it's de-identified, but you find information from pinpoints on a map. Um, so we've taken that and done that um, and then added different variables like economic status or um, 
income status, and we're trying to find little bits of information about, you know, are people um, in this area more prone to diabetes? Yeah. So, you know, you might live in an area that has a high rate of diabetes and not be aware of it, but it's because everybody goes to Donut Emporium. Yeah, where he eats McDonald's four times a day. Yeah, we're not going to talk about that again. Yeah. Okay, we're not. You're right. We're not going to bring that up. No, but I think this whole issue of communication, the information that you'd like to have in the EHR, mm-hmm. and the and the behaviors, right, that, that we need healthcare to kind of give patients. Because like you said, you're, the last thing you were thinking about is yourself. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and so somebody needs to do that for you. And doctors are nurses, and we need to help them communicate. It's easy for the brain to say, is it this or this? Is it black or white? Do you have this or that? And it's much harder... For, uh, for most of us, I suppose, to look at the entire system. Yeah. And so since probably most people on this planet don't tend to look at the entire system at once, which really everything in the system is a factor, mm-hmm. like we've been discussing, then the thought of implementing that through big data and then providing us with solutions is great because it's a way of compensating for, I won't call it a shortcoming, we're just you know, life's easier when we can categorize stuff. It's this or that, it's this or that, it's this or that. Instead of going, what are the 3,700 factors that brought this patient here to me today? Right. And, and you know, you could just look at the five that are probably symptoms. Yeah. But the, the, some of those other things, most of them mean nothing. Some of them mean something. And maybe big data could show us that. And that's fascinating to me. But for us to get the data, we have to write it into some system or get it collected from some sensors, yeah. right? There's supposed to be some input modality. Yeah. So it does, it kind of comes back to the, to the doctors and the nurses and everybody else who have mm-hmm. to take the time to say, these may be important characteristics so that we can learn from all of that. Yeah. So, but, so tell, tell us the story of your dad. I am. I, I went through a really tough time with my dad. He had an episode and we're really not entirely sure of what triggered it. And he ended up uh, in sort of a, a manic state and he was brought to the hospital, and they, he didn't really show any signs of recovery. He continued to, for many, many days, be in a manic state. And I'm the sort of person who really wants to be a team member. I want to know what's going on, and maybe I don't have the wherewithal to figure out what to do next, but at the very least, I can figure out how to handle my dad, like what's the best thing I can do for him. And so I wanted to be a part of that team and solving that problem. And he had a physician who shared really nothing with me. He didn't know what was going on or was afraid to tell me. And I got really frustrated with that. And I said, please tell me, like we're days into this, like give me a guess or anything as to what's happening. And um, when he refused, I finally brought him into the hospital administrator. I met with her and said, can we please call this doctor and have a conversation in front of you? Because I feel like maybe that would finally shed some light. And even with that pressure, he refused to give me any information that really was that pertinent to what was happening with my dad. I'd be like, so here's what I've read about, which I'm sure your worst nightmare is the guy who Googles what's happening. Yeah. You know, I'd love to. But you had nothing be, else. But I had nothing yeah. else. So here's what I've done. And I feel like maybe this is happening. Yes or no or maybe. Or I don't know. And if it's I don't know, can we please look into it? And he would give me nothing. And, and, I, and I said, I think, I think we're done. I'm going to stay with the administrator. He walked out. I said, what do I do with this? Like, he hasn't given me any indication. He has any idea what's happening, but he won't include me. And he, you know, what's happening here? And so uh, I, I told her, I said, um, 
I'm getting my dad out of here. And she's like, he doesn't qualify to move. I said, well, I'm a problem solver. And I may not understand the details of my dad's medical stuff, but I will solve this problem. And I think you and I together could get my dad out of here, or I will run over everybody getting my dad out of here. And you seem like a nice lady, and if I hurt your feelings in any way, I'll actually never forgive myself. But I will do that to get my dad out of here. Yeah. So let's figure it out. Yeah. And, we, and she found a way to get him transferred, and he got into a new hospital, and that nurse was awesome. The first night we checked him in, he got settled in, and I was, uh, we were talking about spending the night, and uh, his girlfriend and I, and she's just like, out. She's like, I want you out. Like, the, I got one patient, I don't need three, out. And, uh, and I was like, okay. And she was very sure of herself. And I said, can you give me any idea? And to, she said, I've, I've known your dad for 10 minutes. Here's what I think. And for the first time in weeks, I had an opinion that was, while just only a little bit of exposure and reading a chart. And, uh, and she was so mean. And I said, there's something you need to know before I leave. She goes, what's that? I said, I think... I'm starting to love you because <laughs> for the first time, I'm like, this is my dad. And for the first time, I have at least somebody's communicating with me. And, and she softened and she said, we're going to take care of him. It's going to be fine. Came back the next morning and he was coherent and fine. And they had been medicating him with something that they should have known that his liver couldn't process. And, he, and another medicine they were giving him he was allergic to. And so it was an anti-clotting medicine that was actually causing microclots. Oh. oh, and I forgot a great part. As, as I was leaving the old hospital, the doctor, I said to the doctor, he came to me and said, so you're moving your dad out of here. And I said, look, thank you for your efforts, but I just feel like my dad will be better served somewhere else. And he goes, so who are you? I go, what do you mean? He goes, who are you? What do you do? I said, I don't see why that's relevant. And he goes, well, no, but you're like some big deal entrepreneur. You're a business owner. I go, why does this have anything to do with anything? And it occurred to me Fear. that he was afraid of me. He was afraid that he wouldn't come up with the right diagnosis and that I would sue him or hurt him in some way. And fear kept him from voicing his opinion, which kept wow. him, so he wasn't serving my dad well. But the whole thing just <laughs> yeah. made me, yeah. And then, and then 24 hours later, I walk in and my, and my dad wakes up and he's like, hey, what's going on? And I'm like, hi. And he goes, uh, I don't recognize anything. Am I going crazy? And I'm like, Not take anymore. a deep breath. I have some information to yeah. tell you. And I told my dad how long he'd been out and all how that. And I, and I really feel that by forcing him to move, you know, my, his girlfriend and I saved his life. It's just too bad because who's the next patient going to that doctor? And Big Data could probably tell you a lot of things about that doctor. That story and the disruption to his life, because he spent way more time on his back than he should have in his 80s. He now walks with drop foot. They told him he'd never walk again, but he, he's, he's so determined. He's like, nope, not having that. So started with a walker, then went to a cane. Now he doesn't use a cane, and he's walking, but he has drop foot pretty bad. And the, it definitely had a big impact on him to yep. be on his back for weeks yeah. at his age. So they very much disrupted his life in a way that yeah. he won't fully recover from. But you know what's sad? If you had been able to see his record, it's entirely possible that you would have been the one who could do the Googling, see the medicines, and go, did you know that he's allergic to this? Or have you, did you guys see this report about what these two things do? So we actually have had that happen at, at Vanderbilt numerous times since we've had our portal, where patients go in and look at the stuff ourse- with us and say, 
I don't know if you know, but they tried that on him before or on my mother before. It doesn't work. Yeah. And so we, you know, you have to be receptive. And yeah. this guy or whoever may not have been receptive. But, you know, I mean, I will say not to plug informatics more than one should on an informatics right. podcast. But we are all about giving you total transparency to your record. Yeah. So one of the things that Vanderbilt does is you get the portal, which mm-hmm. I hope you're on. I'm on the portal. And every single one of your meds, every appointment, yep. every bill, yep. every note soon will be on there. Yeah. So if you go somewhere else or if, if you're wondering what the heck this doctor did, you don't have to sort of get that. A lot of patients are embarrassed mm-hmm. by the fact that they are asking these questions. I mean, let's just be really honest. You're an imposing guy, right? Mm-hmm. Big, deep voice. Not Maybe. A, not a, exactly. <laughs> right. And I imagine there's a lot of people who would think, Okay, we got to call the cops. If you came at them and looked serious, they probably, I kid you not, I know how hospitals work. There would be a conversation about, do we need to get somebody in here because this guy could go completely postal on us. So they're not going to talk to you, even if you're a nice person. And that's one of the ways that the technology can help because you can have a conversation Mm -hmm. through the computer, send messages. Those messages are in the chart. I have been told I'm imposing and 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 that may be a factor, but he's the doctor. He shouldn't be afraid of me. And I'm, and I'm certainly, uh, I'm always very pleasant. One of my employees said I was scary recently. And I said, what do you mean I'm scary? I literally haven't yelled at anyone in 10 years. And he goes, that's what's so scary. <laughs> I'm like, you think I'm bottling it up? Like, what do you mean? Like, I don't even. So that's not. That's you know, Norman Bates didn't yell. Just bringing that up. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> great, great. great. It's a new way to insult you. Wow. Wow. So wow. I, I, think I really didn't mean that. I take well, it completely back. Uh, my compensation for this podcast was one tall Starbucks iced coffee. I think we're have to add I'm dinner. starting to wonder. We're I'm starting to wonder if I've dinner. been properly compensated. Yeah, right. You've been accused of being a serial killer, I think. <laughs> um, a big so, one with a hairy neck. One thing that you said that just kills me, and I think about this all the time, is what about the next patient who sees this doctor, right? And so the, the idea that your dad had such a great advocate like I hope my sons would someday advocate for me in just as powerful a way and not everybody has that kind of power in themselves to just go up against this authoritarian figures multiple authoritarian figures and say I'm gonna do this thing and sorry if your feelings get hurt but I'm gonna do this thing either way with you or without you and you know a lot of us who are even have the training or whatever or the degrees we would say okay you know and like acquiesce to the authority and so i think giving people access to the information gives them a tool to help them advocate for their family members even if they don't if they're not imposing or brave he's lucky too and his girlfriend is very she's very um she's a problem solver and she's not not afraid to tell you what she thinks so our job in healthcare is to find this guy. Yeah. Like, we're not going to, but our job in healthcare is for you to be able to submit a report, for us to be able to triangulate in and say, not a great doctor, and for him or her to get training. That's part of, I think a part of the whole reason for a lot of the policy stuff we see now yep. has to do with everybody's got a story like that. I've got yeah. a story like that. I think you've got a dozen stories like that, Coda. Yes. And if he's afraid of me, he's probably afraid to ask for help too. That's a system problem yeah. too. <laughs> Totally agree. And, and you know, that I, I, that was my thing. Like, yes, no, or I don't know. And if it's I don't know, just tell me we'll figure it out together. Like, tell me we'll find someone who knows. And if I have to say, I mean, the, the whole reason for, for Laurie's work is the data that Sarah and I or Coda and I would collect does not tell us the why, right? Yeah. The why and the how. Just learning how things 
how things get done. There's a, a, you know, we try to automate all kinds of processes in healthcare, and, and we're trying now to like extend that out to patients and help automate their ability to comply with their medications or whatever. And we make a lot of assumptions, you know, like if, 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 as long as you have this knowledge, you should be able to carry out this task. Well, it's way more complicated than that. Yeah. It's, it's sometimes it has to do with situational factors or time of day or what are your work hours or whatever. Like it's things are very, things are way more complicated than a process flowchart would suggest. You look like you're about to say something. I was going to make a joke about a process. <laughs> I'm a project manager, but I'm going to hold it in. I'm going to hold it right in. That is so hard. There's a PowerPoint for that, though. All right. I'm sure. I'll, I'll brag on my doctor for a minute, Dr. Uh, David Hasse. He's a guy that looks at everything. He's a guy who wants to see the big picture. He's a, he's a mind very capable of processing that next squared, it's really a squared level of information mm-hmm. and, a, and a wonderful guy. Well, that's great to hear. We know him and he's actually terrific. Yeah. But you know, that's, and again, he's a communicator. Yes. Right. And he, he uses all of the tools that we have available. He uses the technology and he's not afraid of that. Yeah. And, and there's a whole group of doctors still, right? I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard his, his eyes raise and go, I don't know. <laughs> and, and it excites him instead of him, like you'll ask him something and go, I don't know. And you could just see that he's like, the rest of that sentence is, but I'm going to find out. Yeah. <laughs> instead, of, instead of shutting down and not saying anything to me and being afraid to talk to his colleagues, like the gentleman we assume was down in that hospital in Florida with my dad. Yeah. Here at Vanderbilt, well, if you go into the hospital through ER or something, are all your doctors notified? Wow. Um, what do you think? I'm going to say probably not. But it might be important because if you go in, let's say, with chest pains, but you have a liver condition, it might be pertinent for that doctor to be aware. Do you know the answer to that? I would think that your primary care doctor would get a note if you were discharged from the emergency room, but I don't know. So when you first come yeah. in, the answer is rarely there is a way they can find out, and there's a way that we can notify the primary care doctor, but we wouldn't let the whole group know that you're in. That's actually something we're just starting to look at because, to, you know, the other part of this is, let's say you were supposed to be seen by a, a kidney doctor. Let's say you had diabetes. You're in the hospital for something else, but there's actually some things your kidney doctor needs to do. We do have the ability now to say this patient who you've been looking for is here. And that's actually something we've been starting to look at. We, we actually had a meeting about that last week, mm. about exactly how we can start kind of coming up with these kind of command centers for care delivery so that everybody knows, including a social worker, child protective services workers, that you know this person of interest is now around in the orbit of the place. What can we do about it? So is the purpose of that to be proactive and in, in getting other people involved, or is the purpose more along the lines of just communicating? I think it's the assumption that communication will happen. And that's the thing. It's, we're, we're definitely in a you-can-lead-a-horse-to-water field, right? <laughs> it's kind of like, here's some stuff you can know, but we have no idea whether you're going to do anything about it yet. I think that's where it's, we're going. Well, I was thinking about what you said about your father having you know, this reaction to a medication. And you were there to advocate for him. And, you know, we, t- we t- have talked about family members being available, but what if a family member isn't? What if it's just you, Yeah. you know, and you need someone else to advocate and you have a, a doctor, a GI doctor, for example, here, you know, so they all of a sudden get notified and they're like, oh, wait, 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 let's make sure, you know, this is taken care of. You know, not everyone has that luxury, so it'd be right. kind of nice. Yeah, we got a lot to do. Yeah. You've, you've brought up some actually, even though you don't know much about the field, first of all, you've done an amazing job talking. Blessed with ignorance. I can't. Uh, <laughs> see, I'm trying to be serious for just like one moment. No, 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 I, I can't believe 
how willing you are to share some stuff that, that's obviously kind of painful. The good news is, I think you've also kind of quickly realized what the solutions are. You know, a lot of people who go through stuff like that just get angry. But the fact that you've been able to kind of step up a little bit and think about what happened, how could it have been, I, we applaud you for that and, and thank you for sharing that. This has been fun. It's been educational. It's, I learned some things. I like it. Well, thank you. Most of you were nice. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder who he's talking about. Side eye. I gave you a good rap name, Double Strum. Yeah, I, that's, I'm, that's true. I think you should like, add another Twitter feed. Yeah. So, so before we close out, i got to ask you this, and this is a total subject change. You are an amazing artist, and a lot of people who may not know your stuff, I hope they go and listen, and we'll make sure in the show notes we talk about all that. Mm-hmm. Is there something you're working on right now that you either want to hum a few bars or talk about? Oh, I don't. Oh, boy. Uh, I'm a few bars, huh? Well, I'm I'm working on the country album right now. Um, so big departure from like rock. like. Well, I released four country singles last year. Those were the first things I released. Cool. And I but I did a full on Christmas album. So like, who the hell does a Christmas album first? My first major album <laughs> was a Christmas album. <laughs> like that's something you do five albums in. Nope. I love Christmas. Unless you're Norwegian. And uh, no, they, I mean they're not any crazier about it than we are. They like Christmas, but. Yeah. Uh, but you know what you want to do. Yeah, and I had to, and I love Christmas and I love crooning and country doesn't give me that much opportunity to croon, um, so that was a, I had so much fun doing that. But um, and full orchestra like Lindsay wow. L does a duet with me. Brad Paisley plays guitar. Wow. wow. Yeah, yeah. Arm twisted him. That was tough. All I did was ask. He was like, yeah. at four a.m. I asked him, and at four a.m. that same day. I get a track at 4:20 a.m. and I and uh, I wake up and I was like 4:20 a.m. So I, next well, you, day I was like, actually, "Hey, you did actually email me last night at 1:23 a.m." That's normal hours for me. Music right. business. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I usually go to sleep about two. Yeah, and I but I set my alarm for eight hours from when I go to sleep, and I try not to ever have a meeting before 11. That I fail at that sometimes, but I'm aware of it, and I'll go to sleep earlier on the days days that I have that. Yeah. So, so what am I working on? I don't. Uh, there's a uh, I might do a broke down version of uh, Try. I've got Try out, but I don't really love the way it feels right now. So that might feel a bit more Chris Stapleton-y. Might be more like, uh, There are times that I feel frozen in the place where I'm standing. Because that mountain seems impossible to climb. There's times... Anyway, well, I feel weird singing acapella, so let's just stop there. Yeah, no, no. But, um... I just love your voice. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it uh, amazing that, I mean, as a singer, the fact that you have kind of one sound when you talk and a completely open, whole head, I mean, you're obviously well-trained tone when you sing. There's been a lot of lessons. But I, I sang for eight years in Norway without any lessons and just planned on... Nobody ever knowing that I sang. Do you have a minute for this story? Yeah. Uh, I, I um, was singing at uh, the drummer in my band. I was singing at his house at 4 in the morning because we'd been drinking all day. Because that's what you do when the sun finally comes out in Norway. <laughs> and um, I started singing Johnny Cash to the radio. And they turned the radio off. There was like 20 people in the living room. And I turn and look at him. And he points at me and goes, keep singing. And I was just <laughs> drunk enough that, unlike today, I acapella finished Hurt. And um, oh, wow. and they went like, whoa. And I was like, mm. they didn't think anything of it. As a kid, I was told I couldn't sing, and I had believed my whole life that I couldn't sing, and that I wasn't a singer. And the thing is, I've been a baritone since I was little. I've been a big person since I was little. And um, I couldn't sing along to anything on the radio. I was a kid of the 80s. You know, a baritone singing, don't stop 
believe yeah. it. Sounds about as good as it did right there. So, you know, <laughs> I, I, life reinforced that I couldn't sing. Well, the next day I walked into the bar they were playing at and they called me on stage. And I said, absolutely not. And they told the crowd to help me on stage, which they did. Yeah, of course. And I sang Hurt and I, to polite applause, horrified, I, to polite applause, I thought I'd run to the bar. And I look at the barmaid, and I'm like, I would like all the beer, please. <laughs> <laughs> and she looks like the Dragon Queen. She's so Norwegian. Her eyebrows are so white against her fair skin, you can't even hardly see. She's Norwegian, like flat out. Couldn't be more Scandinavian. And uh, I'm looking at the floor going, why did you do that? No one needed to hear that. Like, that was embarrassing for the band. And I look up at her, and she's not moving. And I said, Ugh, like, please get me a beer. She looks at me, and she goes, I have goosebumps. And that's when I decided it'd be cool to start being a singer. Wow. wow. <laughs> uh, they asked me up on stage again later that week. I did it. Uh, they asked me to be in the band. I said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Absolutely not. And two beers later, I was in the band. <laughs> and, I, and I dated the girl for a little beer. while. That's that right. was fun. And, uh, but I loved it. But I, it was supposed to be a secret. And uh, we got better. And the band called me all excited and said, we... You know that festival, Seljord, which is the biggest country festival in Norway? I said, yeah. Uh, we had played the B stage two, uh, a couple years earlier. They said, they want us back, and they want us on the main stage, but they're only going to do it if you can make it. Can you make it wow. to that one? Wow. And I'm like, absolutely. I'm in. So we booked the main stage, and we're going to be one of the opening acts, but still, we're on the big stage. Two weeks later, they announced the headliner. Brad Paisley. And I have not told at this point anybody in Nashville that I'm singing. Like, nobody knows. And suddenly I'm opening for one of my best friends. Oh, yeah. And so that secret coming out was really, it's been exciting. That be a real thrill. Two days later, I was on the jet with him, and I was like, oh. so you're going to Norway, huh? He's like, yeah, how do you know about that already? And he's like, you got to come with me. Come with me. It's going to be fun. I've never been to Europe without you. Come with me. I'm like, I'm your opening act. And he's like, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm your opening act. Like, what? <laughs> and uh, and I sang him a little Johnny Cash there in the uh, in the airplane. A little, I hurt myself today. And he's like, what the hell? Where that come from? And I'm like, I'm your opening act. But I got so scared that I started seeing a vocal coach. And uh, that changed the way I sing a lot. I learned a lot. Wow. I continue to. Right now I'm seeing a woman named Kristen K. Smith. Well, I'll embarrass myself slightly. I am not in your league. But um, when I was in high school, our chorus got a chance. I'm a, I'm a, I was a bass player, was an all-Eastern bass player, also sang baritone in a barbershop quartet. All right. And when we... Wait, that's so weird. Uh, me too. <laughs> God, jeez. What can I throw at her? <laughs> Here, have some more limoncello. No. So anyway, we're sitting out. I was over 18, but not 21, and a bunch of us got our hands on a little bit of alcohol, and a friend of mine and I proceeded to sing, and yes, this is a little geeky, but nevertheless, here it is, solos from the Messiah outside of Lincoln Center, because we could. We were out there by ourselves, and we were doing some stuff. Would anybody like to hear what that sounded like? Yes. I would. I would. Yes. Oh, my God. Uh, Come on, Kevin. Uh, I haven't done it in so long. You're at least like a pro at this. I'm, I'm a total hack. I don't like your attitude. All right. Okay. Sometime in the next year, I think you should do. You should sing a little bit. Well, okay, here's yeah. something for you. Ready? Well, excuse me, but I think you're in my chair. 
Oh, that one's not taken, I don't mind. If you sit there, I'd be glad to share. Yes, it's usually packed here on Friday night. I'm not going to keep singing, but there you go. Yeah! Roberto, that's up there. I nice, you've got some range, I don't can, you? I can do second tenor and I can do first bass. Well, I told you we'd cover a lot, and I hope we didn't disappoint. Well, as promised, I want to close out with one of Scott's songs. I'd encourage each of you to go to his website and download this one called Try. Scott is personally responsible for choosing this song to close it out, and for good reason. He reminds us that Try is a song about tenacity. That's what we all need right now, especially in Nashville, where we've experienced so many calamities, including the flood that impacted much of the music scene in the area, a tornado that killed at least 24 people, and a week later, major shutdowns to slow the spread of the coronavirus. Even if it's the tenacity to be mentally tough enough to stay at home, and to challenge dogma in your community about this all being a media ploy, or about this being just like the regular flu, I hope this song speaks to each of you. And with that, have a great day. There are times when I feel frozen in the place where I'm standing Cause that mountain seems impossible to climb There are times I hear the words saying careful where you step And I realize that voice inside is mine I'm not listening I'm not listening Fear is a necessary evil But if it changes you, you're never gonna fly Just keep walking forward when your knees are shaking You might be scared as hell But the only ones who really fail are the ones who down just like a prisoner I'd rather make mistakes than just stand still I might fall flat on my face but tell me man who hasn't and the way I got back up was by sheer will I'm not giving in I'm not giving in
Fear is a necessary evil But if it changes you You're never gonna fly Just keep walking forward When your knees are shaking You might be scared as hell But the only ones who really fail Fly.